Well, I've never had the privilege of introducing Tim before, but uh counted a privilege tonight to do that. Tim was someone I met, uh, see, it's got a, feels like at least 10 years ago, but maybe that's not quite right. I believe we met at Milmont Greenhouses there. I was working there at a greenhouse and in Stewart's Draft, and I met Tim there um, before he gave his heart to the Lord. And uh, yeah, I was just, we, we became fairly good friends um, at that point. And then I'd, I left, was on the mission field for two years, and came back and got reacquainted with him. And I think at that point we really became a lot closer friends. Um, and he had given his heart to the Lord in that in that time. And uh, we'll hear more about that here soon. Um, but he always just impressed me as a um, very sincere person. Um, no pretense, no um, no putting on any kind of show of any sort. Just very real and very down to earth. And I always appreciate that about Tim. And uh, I'm just looking forward to what he has to say tonight. I've heard it share his life story maybe I didn't count, but I'm thinking at least four times, maybe five. Um, but I've never, never gotten tired of it at all, and I'm looking forward to it a lot tonight. It's been a while since I've heard him share it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I've always been blessed with Tim's friendship. Um, him and I have been very close friends um, for quite some time. So, um, why don't you come on up, Tim, and I'll have a prayer for you again. Pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you for this evening. I thank you for this opportunity. Thank you that we can all be together here. And uh, Lord, I just pray that um, you would be very close to Brother Tim as he's up here. That you would know that he's not alone and that um, you're helping him to share the words that you would have him to share with us. Just help us all to be attentive listeners. And uh, may this be a, a good evening for all of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hmm. Thanks, brother. <clears throat> Good evening. Um, many faces. Some of y'all look vaguely familiar. Some of y'all don't look familiar. I know some of y'all um, fairly well. I'm very blessed to be here. Um, it, it's hard to put words to the honor of talking about something as great and as magnificent as of the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, there's nothing in this world that can compare to the beauty, the glory, and the power that we can partake of. The power of God through His Son, Jesus. And and he said it quite truthfully when he says, no man comes unto the Father but by me. It's, it's only by Jesus. And, and I'm here to tell you about the best day of my life when that great salvation, that great salvation of the Lord Jesus became so real to me. It wasn't any longer something that I had heard about, but it was just so real. And it was a work that God himself had done. 
This is a work that God himself had done. And I know that I stand here amongst brothers and sisters. This great salvation is accomplished in you. And each one of us can give a testimony of a salvation that is great. Sometimes we hear about radical conversions. And I'm here to share with each one of you who have partaken of that salvation of a radical conversion. Anyone who has been converted has had a radical conversion. And I am just so blessed to to be here to talk about my dear Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is alive and on the throne today. And that grace is still being extended to those who will just but humble themselves before him. Um, And I'm just very blessed to, I guess, come to the place where my my very dear friend Eric is finding fellowship. And um, I'm just reminded of how much of a blessing it is to have a dear friend in the Lord. If you have a dear friend in the Lord, you are a very, very wealthy person. Eric's been a very dear friend to me. My name is Tim Croft. Um, Tim, Timothy, and I was born in 1980. Um, I have a wife and two very beautiful children, ages two and about four and a half months. And as the uh, minutes unfold tonight and I tell you about the journey which I have walked, um, I think just that simple statement there will be a quite a miracle to your ears, that I could stand here as a, as a husband and a father, because um, it should have never been so, outside of the grace of God. Um, <clears throat> so I guess I'll just begin. Like I said, I was born in, in 1980, and I was born in the state of Missouri, which I don't very much remember. Um, I moved away from Missouri before my first birthday. At a very young age, my, my mother and my father divorced. I have no memory of my mother and my father ever being together. And I, I'd just like to, to insert here, um, I know my mother and father love me dearly. I really do. And it's been a challenging road to know how to walk. But I do love them very much, and I know that they love me. And as we go on, um, maybe you'll understand why that's important to say. Um, They divorced when I was very young. I have no memory of them together. And for the first 12 years of my life, I lived with my father. And he had remarried very early on, early enough to where I don't remember when he married the second time to my first stepmother. And I did have contact with my mother, would see her on holidays and for summers. But what is very profound and what I want to share is that divorce is incredibly impacting. It is incredibly impacting. I interpret the scriptures 
my desire is to interpret the scriptures as God has intended them to be interpreted. And I believe that an original marriage is binding unto death. As I believe Jesus said that we are not to divorce and marry another. And, and a wife is bound to her husband as long as her husband liveth. And there's more than just a rule that God has called humans to live by in that. I believe that it's within our creative, within the way that he's created us. Because my parents splitting apart was so terribly devastating to me. It was just absolutely devastating. And you might think that if it happened at such a young age and I have no memory of them ever being together, why would that affect me so much? Why would it? But it did. I remember growing up still at a very, very young age. Um, I remember lying on my bed. I don't know how old I was, maybe seven years old. Um, just crying my eyes out. Crying and crying and crying. Why? Thank you, brother. That's perfect. Thank you. Um, why couldn't my mom and my father be together? It was so deeply impacting to me. And it was so emotionally devastating. And I remember, I remember my dad coming to me and he said, Son, I know you're very sad about this. But we're not going to get back together. And maybe at seven years old, it was, it, was like, it was like somebody just thrust a dagger into my heart. Because it was something that I wanted so bad. There was something within me that just cried out, it shouldn't be this way. It should not be this way. But that's the way it was. And as time went on, I, I made a lot of efforts to accept the circumstances. Um, I didn't grow up in a heavily Christian-influenced environment. Um, my father would take us to church, I would say, just very occasionally. Um, and we went to a Presbyterian church every once in a while. It was very much a, uh, a unique thing to, to go. But my dad did make efforts to bring teachings of the Bible and teachings about God according to Jesus in our life, and I bless him greatly for it. And the efforts that he made, I, I believe, are not in vain. Um, he even sent us to a Lutheran school. In second, third, and fourth grade, I went to a Lutheran school, and, and I very dearly bless my father for doing that. Um, because I know sending us, we lived in Houston, Texas at that time, um, sending us to that school cost him a lot of extra money and extra, a lot of extra time when it would have been just easy enough to put us on the, the bus to the public school and be done with it. But he made those efforts. And those seeds that were planted in that time of my life, I think, are very valuable. Seeds of recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God. Recognizing that Jesus is one who will forgive and that God is the creator of all things. These are good things. Um, there were some very important teachings that I looking back, we're definitely missing in those environments. Teachings about a new birth. Teachings that a man can be set free from sin. Teachings that you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. These things were very, very, very foreign to me. I'll go back to when I was very young. My parents had split apart. Um, we moved away from Missouri and moved to North Carolina where I was living with my father and my first stepmother. Um, I had a younger half-brother um, born into the family. 
Uh, he was very much a sibling to me. And I have uh, one older sister. My older sister would be the only other child from my mother and father's original marriage. And from a very young age, I found within myself a lot of anger and even depression at times. I was one who didn't always lash out my anger at other people. I was more one to take my anger and very much turn it within and, and take it out on myself. Um, probably again around that time, seven years old or so, I very specifically remember being so overcome with my anger and my hurt and my frustration and I had no idea what to do with it. And I was sent to my room for something and I don't remember what it was, but I remember finding a, a little knife that my sister had from a chemistry set and I remember just cutting into my arm, just in my anger, I have no idea what to do and just filled with fury, absolute fury and pain with no outlet. It was shortly thereafter that I found a coat in the closet and I went up and there was a window. This was on the second floor of the house and, and there was um, a roof that went right out into that window and I, I slid that window open and I was determined that I was going to run away. And I climbed up on the bed up to that window and I remember I, had, I was, had the window open, I was about to go out and then at that exact moment my sister opened the door and looked in the room and the look on her face told the whole story. She took off running, and I knew I was caught. And to this day, I believe that was just the mercy of God, that I didn't get away that day. That would have not turned out well at all, I'm sure of it. Um, in this time of my life, I was told that there was some physical abuse towards me from some reliable eyewitnesses. I don't personally have very clear memories of that, and so I don't, I try not to dwell on that aspect of things. Um, sometimes I think we can try to dig things up and look for things to explain our current behaviors, and sometimes there's validity in that. Anyways, also around this time, um, in one of the, the summers that I was visiting with my mom, she was a, she is a doctor, and if you know anything about doctors, doctors are very busy people, and they do a lot of good in this world. My mom is a very good doctor, and she's helped a lot of people, and I bless her for the ways that God has allowed her to be used for the touching of people's lives. Having said all that, for a young person an absent parent is a very hard thing, is a very hard thing. And I remember one particular time in the summers when, when we would go, my sister and I, and we would visit my mom, and by this time she had also married a second time, and he was also a doctor. We had a lot of uh, babysitting and summer camp time, and one particular time I was being uh, babysat, at a, must have been a friend's house or something. And there was another child there who was a little bit older than me. And at this time in my life, I was molested. Um, I think some people have incredible horror stories of this terrible, terrible crime. It is so 
impacting to a human mind. The depth at which things like that will strike into a person's mind and heart, it's hard to describe. And if anyone in here has experienced anything like that, or you know anyone who has experienced anything like that, I encourage you not to minimize that experience. But I encourage you to somehow, by the grace of God, let that person know there is hope. There is hope. And this is what tonight is about. Telling you about the hope that is found in Jesus. This is a good story. And from then on, um, I pretty much put that out of my mind. It's amazing what maybe partially by design, maybe partially by default, the things that our minds can choose to just forget as if they had never happened in the mental aspect of it, though the emotional um, consequences seem to follow us quite readily. Um. So, I was spending summers with my mom, and I was spending the other part of time with my dad, um, growing up, uh, having some Christian influence. My dad did teach us the Lord's Prayer. I remember at night before bed, my dad would come in and, and teach my half-brother and I the Lord's Prayer, and we repeated after him. I didn't really know what it meant other than it was a nice bonding time, and it seemed good to talk about God some. Um, And then I went to school. I went to a public school after that. Um, Had moved from North Carolina to Houston, Texas. And Houston, Texas is where I'd gone to the private Lutheran school, still living with my dad. And um, my first stepmother. And then eventually moved into another state, Arkansas, still living with my dad. And by this time, he'd remarried for a, a third time to my second stepmother. And I would like to just share, I'm very thankful that probably the vast majority of the people in this room cannot relate to the things I'm saying. And I would encourage you to thank God for that. There are things that you have experienced that I can't relate to. And through those experiences, you can reach out and help people. Um, One thing that you probably will have a hard time relating to is having various parents that you may even call mom or dad that aren't your mother or father. And the different changes that come into a home in a remarriage. As I have been given children, I find just how important routine is. Routine's big stuff for a two-year-old. And I think in some regard, we don't ever fully grow out of that. And so when a parent leaves the home and another one comes in, sure, you may have breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but even small things like the way the meals are prepared, it's so changing on such subtle and foundational levels, it's very shaky. And it's hard to really find what's true and what's not true, in a sense, because everything is so fluid and so subjective. The very things that are meant to be foundational for a child keep changing, and and you find that it's just not stable in 
can't find anything that really truly is. Now, I never heard until my later mid-20s any teaching about divorce and remarriage. Many of you have grown up with this teaching, and it's a very good teaching, and it's a necessary teaching. But it's something that I never, ever heard. Growing up in the world, it's very normal for parents to split apart and then get remarried. There's an acknowledgement of, yes, this is hard, but no one ever really calls it sin. No one ever really calls it disobedience to God and His design. And so, as I'm growing up, and I'm, and I'm having my parents split apart here, and a remarriage here, and then another divorce here, and then another remarriage over here, and I'm calling this one mom, but she's not my mom, and I'm calling this one my mom, and she is my mom. And for a young mind to try to differentiate and even make sense of all these things, it's terribly, terribly confusing, as I'm sure you can imagine. But there's something that I want to point out here, and I think it's very important. There was something within myself that just cried out against it. As I shared with you very early on, as it just tore me to pieces that my mother and father, something that I had no memory of ever existing, that it wasn't that way. And I don't even know, I, I don't have any memory of that time ever looking at some other child and just thinking, oh, I want it to be like yours. It wasn't that I wanted it to be like yours. I wanted this just to be right. That's what it felt like to me. But growing up with this teaching, I was being um, fed something else within my mind. In my mind, I was telling myself, no, this is right. This is good. This is the way it should be. And if you can imagine, within myself, I had this part of me that screamed out against it just so vehemently. And then in my mind, I, I told myself the exact opposite thing. And there was this major disconnect within myself. And this over here, this intense anguish in my soul, no longer had an explanation. Because it couldn't be divorce, because divorce was okay, quote unquote. Does that make sense? And so there was this incredible pain and depression and anger that I carried all the time, and I had no explanation for it. And this was an incredible plague of my life. <clears throat> I often spent time just, just in darkness is what it felt like. I, for, a, for a season, I was very much into art. My art would often tell, tell the story of just horrible, horrible pictures, which were just the expressions of the things that were going on inside. <clears throat> when I was 12 years old, living with my dad and my second stepmom by this time, I don't quite remember exactly what the circumstances were that brought the choice to me, but at that time in my life, I had the choice of maybe I could go live with my mom and her second husband. By this time, they were living down in Florida.
and so I went. And I think partially one of the reasons I went is because by that time my dad had just re, uh, recently remarried to my second stepmother, who was very kind to me. My second stepmother was very kind to me. Um, but just going through this whole divorce and remarriage thing was just too much for me. It was just too much. And so I went and lived with my mom. My sister had already made that choice, I think, a year earlier. And perhaps it just seemed there was some stability there. Perhaps it was the very deep longing within my heart to finally be reunited with my mother. That's very, very, again, divorce is such a sad, destructive thing. If anyone ever thinks that somehow, especially with children, that they're going to have a divorce and come out without battle scars on everyone involved, they're deceived. It doesn't work that way. I'm not saying there's, there are some times when there needs to be separation. But it's a very hard thing. And growing up without my mom, living with my dad, my stepmother never could fulfill that deep longing within my heart I had for my mom. And this is one of the quandaries that any, any child with a broken home finds himself. Especially when they're in a place where they need to decide, do I want to live with mom or dad? Because you can't win. You cannot win when you're faced with this decision. And there's major impacting ramifications for making that decision to a young person. It feels like you may love one more than the other. It feels like you'll hurt one more than the other. And so often it's so easy for a child to blame themselves for the divorce. To somehow look and see, what could I have done? This must be my fault. And then when you've got to choose one or the other, that's incredibly, incredibly difficult. Because when you choose dad, you don't get mom. And when you choose mom, you do not get dad. Saying yes to one means saying no to the other. And there's really not many other ways to slice it. <clears throat> and that, that empty space, as I have grown up, that was there when my mom was not present with me in my very young years, I have found to be one of the most profoundly impacting emotional circumstances that I have ever been through. And I see it even in my adult life, how it has greatly influenced some of the times, the ways I feel, some of the decisions that I make, some of the things that I've reacted to. Um, and I'm thankful for the grace of God. I don't have to live underneath those circumstances. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't greatly, greatly impacted by them. And so maybe this choice to go live with my mom was in some ways a, a, fine, a finally a, an opportunity to fulfill something that I'd always longed for. And I really, really did. And so I went to go live with my mom. And the, how should I say, the, the tone of uh, 
child training, maybe you could say, was radically different um, with my mom than it was with my dad. My dad was much more to, I, I personally growing up felt he was incredibly overprotective. I felt like I just had no room to do the things that I wanted to do. Um, and I think that was good um, in a lot of ways. And when I went to live with my mom, I found that I had more freedom than I knew what to do with. I really did. And of course, she and my stepfather, both being um, very busy doctors, left me with a lot of time on my own. And unfortunately, a child left to his own brings his mother to shame. And I brought, I have brought my mom to shame so many times. I have brought her to shame. I have brought her to tears. Some of the, some of the most regretful things that I have ever done involved the ways that I've mistreated my parents. Young people, you do well to honor your parents. You do very well to not lash out at them. You do very well. If, if you allow yourself to be influenced by God and you have mistreated your parents, the day will come when you will deeply, deeply regret it. And that's good. It's much better to deeply regret it than justify yourself. So my encouragement to the young people are, if it's hard and your parents seem unfair and unreasonable, I'm not going to tell you that maybe they're totally being fair. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're just not being fair. But I encourage you to honor them. Honor them well. Because it will go well with you if you do. And if you dishonor them, it will not go well with you. I promise. No, I don't promise. God promises. Anyways, so I was living with my mom and my first stepfather, and I had a lot of freedom. And of course, at that time, for a 12 and 13-year-old, this is great. This is great. I can do almost anything that I want to. Um, really not much supervision. I went to public school, and by this time, any, any thought or idea of attending a church service was about as far out the window as something could be. That's not something that I have... It's in that period of time in my life, I have no memory of ever sitting through a church service with that um, part of the family. I went to a public school, and I grew up a lot of ways the, that's normal here in American society. Um, starting to get into very, very wicked music by this time. The kind of music that when you're driving down the road and you hear that car bumping next to you and the window's down, it, it, it just sounds like there's a gateway to hell coming right out of their speakers. And that music is just as horrible in its influence as it sounds. And so I found myself getting into things like that. And for some reason, at a very young age, even before this, it seemed that my sister and I were influenced by the occult, and I'm not exactly sure how or why. But this period of time in my life, I think especially, things like this became much more practically real. I remember there would be times when my sister would bring, bring me into a trance through hypnosis. And probably at 12 and 13 years old, I was channeling spirits, devils, 
if you will. And if you don't know what that means, basically, I was yielding my body and my voice for devils to come through me and talk out of my mouth to say things. And my sister would bring me into a trance to accomplish these things. I will tell you that the unseen demonic world is real. And I think we can all be very thankful that we don't see it as vividly as God does. Psychics and all manner of witchcraft, it's not a hoax, it's just horrendously black and wicked. And so in this time I was dabbling in these things, of course, my conscience was so defiled that, and I was so eaten up with bitterness, unexplainable darkness and bitterness. And later in my life, as I found myself deeper and deeper into witchcraft, I found that in these circles are hosts of people that are so deep in the gall of bitterness. If you think of the New Testament in Acts, where Simon the sorcerer is making the attempt to buy the Holy Spirit, and Peter calls him out. The Lord gives him discernment. He says, I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness. Of all things, have you ever thought that was an interesting comment for Peter to say? He could have said, you're proud. He could have said, you're greedy. He could have said anything, but he said, you're in the gall of bitterness. There is something about bitterness that seems to draw like a magnet to sorcery and witchcraft. And that's where I found myself starting to dabble in these things. Um... And it very much affects the mind. Sometimes there would be parties in this household. And I remember one time, just the house filled with drunkenness and loud music. Um, I was a bit too young to really know what to do with all that. Um, however, I was drinking alcohol, probably 14 or less years old. 13, maybe 12. 13. And I remember sitting in my room at night, as this party was still going, I was trying to fall asleep. People were drunk, starting to fall asleep in various couches in the house. And I remember very clearly one night just getting this sense that there was a demon in my room. And it's hard to explain exactly what that's like, but I want you to understand that it gripped me with very deep fear. I could just feel that there was some kind of evil presence in that room, and I didn't know what to do about it. Dabbling with the occult opens those kinds of doors to a person's life. As time went on, things progressed along this direction. Parties continued. Drinking continued. <clears throat> the depression progressively got worse as my life went on. Progressively more debilitating. And it was still a mystery to me. Why? Did I feel this way? I could not explain it. It seemed like I was a victim of depression, like there was just something wrong with me. Eventually, I <clears throat> went into high school, got very much into the gothic kind of scene. That's the people generally with a lot of black clothes, very grungy, long hair, chains, a lot of dark music, a lot of sadness and darkness there. More on my own. Um, very, very little direction in life. Was just out to do what pleased me the most. Whatever was the most fun for me to do, that is what I gave myself over to. 
And why, why wouldn't I? I found, I started to find um, an escape from a lot of my problems and issues in friends, in parties, in drinking, and also in um, the sport of surfing. I was down in Florida at this time. And there was something about that that really was so attractive to me. Because here I could go out into the ocean and no one was around me. It was like I found the perfect escape from all life's troubles. Nobody could bother me out there. It was something that was fun. And it became such a significant idol to me. It's what I started to live for. <clears throat> and I met a friend. I met a friend. I'll, I'll withhold his name for now. But he was, we became friends in uh, high school and we started to do a lot of things together. We, we did a lot of surfing together. We did a lot of traveling together. We did drinking together. We partied together. We got into all manner of mischief together. All kinds of just rebellion. Very unprofitable things. And as my gave my heart over to surfing, thinking that somehow this was going to be the answer to my life. This was going to be where I would find all my happiness. I was going to find everything that I always wanted. All this sadness, all this emptiness. Finally, I was going to find fulfillment in a sport. And so I started traveling some. I went to California for a summer. And when I came back from California, my good friend that I met in high school that we spent years together side by side, somehow was different. Because while I was in California, God put his finger on him. And he responded to the call, and he got born again. He got converted. And so when I went out to California, I had this great friend, partners in crime, if you will. And when I came back, he was gone. And there was this different person in my friend's body. He didn't even really look the same. It was like his whole face was lighter. It was really, really something. And so for the first time in my life, I had such a hands-on look at the power of God and what God can do. And it was really interesting because at that time, you know, at first we agreed with one another and so we could walk together. And as he gave his heart to the Lord, he started to change direction. And I wasn't changing direction. I was very caught up in my, in my pride. And that's primarily what it was. Caught up in my pride... But the interesting thing was, when my friend first got converted, he didn't just disappear. He didn't just rush off to a, a congregation somewhere and just totally disappear, which might have been profitable for him to do, really. Um, but he didn't. It was like he still went to the parties. He still hung out with this group of rebellion friends that I was always hanging out with. But something was so different. Where we once would go to the parties and just get um, absolutely drunk together, he wasn't drinking anymore. He wasn't getting drunk. And he was preaching at anyone that would get near him. And so if you can imagine this scene, 
you have this, this horrendous party with this absolutely demonic music just blaring, people drunk all over the place, young people, I would say maybe all of them, you know, very much under teenagers, young teenagers. And then here's this one guy in the corner that nobody wants to get near to because he keeps preaching at them. It was really something. And I've got no stones to throw at him for that, you know. I think God had him on a journey, and, and God used that. Because there was something that I had to reconcile. I had heard about God many times, and society will speak about God and Jesus here and there. But for some reason, when my friend would talk about God, it cut me to the heart. And I couldn't figure out why, and it deeply, deeply troubled me. I wanted an answer for why when he spoke about God, it bothered me so much. Why was it when he spoke about God, did I just want to grind my teeth? It was so, so troubling to me. And it made me angry, really. I didn't like it. And in that period of time in my life, God also was putting his finger on me. I was, this was I would have been about 18 at this time. God was also putting his finger on me. And I knew, and there came a day when I knew that through my friend, I knew that God was calling me to lay down this, this idol of surfing, this rescuer that I thought I had found. God was calling me to lay it down, and I wasn't willing to do it. The mercy of God is so great. I think one of the most severe sins that I have ever committed, and that maybe any person can ever commit, is when God comes to them, and when God had come to me, and I rejected him. Sometimes the more outward, grotesque sins, gross sins as we sometimes label them, the smoking, the drinking, the the foul language, the, the, the criminal activity, I think those pale to be very, very small compared to the conscious choice to reject the wooing of the Holy Spirit. That is a very, very severe sin to commit. And I found this out. I was so... In, I was not willing to give up what I wanted. And I knew in my heart that's what God was calling me to do. And in a sense, a lot of these other gross sins are just symptoms. They're just, they're just expressions of the deeper things within a person. And so I moved out to California. And my pathway with my friend went like this. He was committed to follow the Lord Jesus. And I was committed not to. I wouldn't have said that, of course. I would have tried to make some lame excuse. Oh, I love God. You know, God's good. Um, maybe you're just a little different. Or what you have, that's just not quite for me. I'm sure you've heard them. If you've ever tried to talk to somebody in this world about the living God, I'm sure you've heard these lame excuses. Some lame excuse to somehow try to appease the conscience, which is what I had done for years. There's one thing that I have, many things, one of the things that I have found in those valleys of decision, 
when the mercy and faithfulness of God had brought me to a place of choice. And it's choice. We have to choose to follow God. And when God brought me to that place where the choice was clear, there's something that was so consistent. God has done this a number of times. And as I'll tell you, in this place, it seemed there was always something that I had to give up. There was always something that had to be given up in order to embrace God. It was never, I could have both. I always had to give something up. And the thing, and this was a repeated circumstance in my life, in this case it was surfing, this thing that I wanted so bad, I thought was going to be the thing that made my life great. I had these hopes, I had these dreams. And I thought my life was going to be good if I can just have this. This whole thing about Jesus, I, could, I knew that meant giving up. That doesn't sound like fun to me. That doesn't sound like happiness. This sounds like happiness, and that's what I'm going to go do. And what I found is it's a total illusion. How does it go? Imagined sin is fun. Real sin is empty. Imagined righteousness is boring. Real righteousness is greatly fulfilling and incredibly exciting. And I was under that deception. And so, as my hopes and dreams were going to take off my life, and I was going to have all this fun, and, and all this emptiness I was going to finally fulfill. This is where I thought I was going. This is where I was really going. There's something about denying God that has a profound effect on a human being. We cannot make a decision like that without reaping very severe consequences. It says that God gives them over to a strong delusion because they had pleasure in unrighteousness and received not a love of the truth. It says that God hardens their hearts in Romans. And I believe that hardening is something that a person reaps when they choose to reject God. After that choice, I found myself more in sins that I didn't ever know that I was going to commit. Choices like that have severe consequences. They further singe a person's conscience because that's what I had to do to reject God's call in my life. I had to singe my conscience to go away from it. And when a person's conscience is defiled, when a person's conscience is singed as mine was, no longer was my perception of right and wrong as defiled as it was at that point, got even worse. I found myself very empty out there living in California. I was living my dream and I was so empty. It was very saddening to me. And I found that depression got worse and worse and worse. And... I moved back to Georgia around that time. I actually moved back in with my dad. When I went to California, I moved off on my own, living out by myself there as a young teenager and in my early 20s. I found that all my dreams were not fulfilled, and so uh, 
I came back in a lot of depression. Not really sure what to do with myself. <clears throat> and then I, I thought, well, I wasn't quite ready to let go of this whole, this whole surfing thing, and so I went to Hawaii for a while. And that was very, very empty. Those are some of the darkest times that I can remember in my life. Where I was so overcome with depression. If you haven't experienced a real depression, then it probably just seems like a great mystery to you why someone can just walk around and be so sad and not really have an answer to it. But for someone who knows what depression is, you can probably relate to what I say. I'm not using that word flippantly. I'm not meaning to say that I was just kind of bummed out. I mean to say that I thought about suicide often. And sometimes it was very difficult to come up with a reason why not to. Sometimes I just tell, sometimes I just think, you know, I know what the blackness is. I know what the darkness is of depression. Because I've seen it. Now, I'm sure there's people who have seen it darker than me. But I know what it's like. It's hard. And so here I was in Hawaii, so full of pain, so full of anger, having no explanation for it, not knowing what to do about it, still just going, resulting to anything, re resulting to cutting myself. There are, there are still faint scars on my body as I stand here before you from those days with the knife. And here I was, why is it this way? I was in Hawaii, I was in surfer's paradise. And I remember this, this one moment where I was, I was riding this wave and I guess you could say it was as high of an experience a person could ever ask for. And some of those experiences, there's, there's some adrenaline rush there. And it requires a lot of focus of mind to where often a person doesn't think about anything else, and that's why it was such an addiction to me. Because there were these moments in time when I could get things out of my mind. But that doesn't really work, because really what happens is you just kind of pile them up until they cave in on you. I remember I was on this wave, and I was having the, one of the highest experiences any server could ask for. And I remember in that moment, I had a clear, a very, very clear understanding and sense, I am still depressed. I am still depressed. And it was like the bottom just finally fell out of this whole dream. Because this thing was obviously not holding the water that I needed it to hold. I needed, I needed, to, I needed an answer. I needed fulfillment. And this wasn't doing it. The greatest experience I could ever ask for, and here I am, still totally empty. The mercy of God. One of the saddest things that I, I see is when people find enough satisfaction to not want God. They find enough satisfaction in this life to not want God. And I count it one of the greatest expressions, one of the greatest expressions of mercy that God ever showed to me was this pain and deep, dark depression that I could never get away from. 
<clears throat> this time using, started using drugs. I remember just sitting in the corner, hiding in the corner with a, with a, with a pipe in my mouth. Just having no, nothing to live for. Why am I alive? I went back to Atlanta. I was living with my dad. I was just becoming more incapable of functioning in society because of my depression there in Atlanta. I remember, again, just being so full of this pain and this anger and not knowing what to do about it. I remember I was in the basement there of my dad's house and I took this door and I just pulled it into my head and I just would bang my head on that door as hard as I could over and over and over again. A person who is overcome with rage will resort to crazy things. And it's cra that's a crazy thing to do. And that's where I was at because I just wanted something to stop the pain. I would feel anything. I wanted to feel anything other than what I was feeling. After doing that for a while, I eventually just sort of collapsed on the floor there. Eventually my dad came and found me and, and he didn't know what to do with me. He was... Um, just had no idea what to do. And I, as a father, my heart really goes out to those circumstances. Um, you know, for a father to find his son on the floor after doing something like that. Um, but I think he did what he thought was the best thing for me. Um, he sent me to a psychiatrist. And then from, a, from there on, I went to a psychologist. Um, if you don't know the difference, a psychiatrist is kind of a, a mental doctor who has the liberty to prescribe medication for um, mental disorders, so to speak. Um, and sometimes they'll, they're a little bit more geared to try to solve problems through meds. A, a psychologist does not have the freedom to prescribe meds, and so they're a little more geared towards counseling. So I was uh, given medication for my obvious symptoms of severe depression. Um, which I don't really remember it helping any. Um, of course, I would mix it with um, illegal drugs and alcohol and suffered some very significant consequences from doing that. I'm sure that didn't help either. And I was going to a psychologist. And I remember at this time going to these psychologist appointments. It was like something within me was just saying, this isn't the way. This isn't the way. Now, there is some value a person can find in a psychologist's office. They can find a safe place to talk about things that maybe they just never knew that they could talk about before. There's value in that. And I think we need to create those spaces for each other um, amongst God's people. We need places to pour our hearts out one to another. But here's an incredible deception in that environment. The psychologist is not there to lead me to the cross. He's not there to tell me about the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, I'll pour myself out and, and start talking about these deeply hurtful things and I'm having all these emotional experiences and they might have some feel-good things to say. But that's not deliverance. In fact, it can be worse than a deliverance. 
because it can get, you can get a sensation. I started getting these sensations of if I'm having these deep emotional experiences, I must, that must be it. That must be it. That's not it. <clears throat> and like I said, as going to these psychologist appointments, I just, there was something within me that was just saying, this is not the way. This is not the way. And I, I didn't really have much of an explanation for it. But I tried to go and I, I, I tried to give it an honest shot. <clears throat> um, desperation will um, lead you to do various things. Obviously, I wasn't desperate enough because God was faithful in that time to meet with me again. By this time, I was 22, 23 years old. And I remember one night in the basement there of my father's house. So overcome with, with depression. In this period of my life, I had so much, so much dark depression. I used to walk down the road and just, just, just wish a car would lose control and kill me. I remember waking up in the morning and just not wanting to see the day. Because the day didn't seem like it held anything more than more pain, more darkness, more depression, more unexplainable hopelessness. Unexplainable hopelessness. <clears throat> and it... I remember one time in one of my parents' houses, sitting there with a handgun in my lap, doing the, the pros and cons list. Why should I not kill myself now? Why should I? Again, I think it's the mercy of God that I didn't just stick that gun to my head and, and pull the trigger. If you have guns in your house, be wise about it. Be wise about it. I don't think any, either of my parents ever would have thought that I would have done something like that, but I did. And God, like I said, God was faithful to meet with me in this time. And I started to take on such this victim mentality. I am a victim. Even blaming God. God, why did you make me this way? This is your fault. I didn't ask for this. You made me like this. What can I do? I just want to stop being this way. And God was faithful. He, he, he met with me in that time. And I remember the Holy Ghost came into that room where I was by myself on the floor just crying. And it was like in a moment's time. It was like God just made so clear to my mind in that moment. He said, you're angry. You are angry. And I had so much of an argument. No, I am a victim. I am a victim. You're angry. And I'll be honest with you, there are thing, events in my life where, yeah, I mean, I didn't ask for them. It was just handed to me. So in a sense, yeah, there's some victim there. But I so much wanted my victim mentality. I didn't want to take responsibility for anything. And, and it was like God was just saying, give me your anger. And that violated my pride so much that I rejected God. You would think a person 
in these circumstances by now would have, would have just raised the white flag. Wouldn't that have just been the wise, logical thing to do? Pride is such a destructive sin. Pride is such a destructive sin, and there stands before you, apart from the grace of God, one of the biggest fools that ever walked the face of the earth. But, like I said, the mercies of God are so great. God, of the times in my life that I've almost died by making foolish decisions just for the sake of pride, God, God could have just very easily let me go. I remember two times very clearly I very, very easily could have and probably should have drowned. But God saved me. <clears throat> Unconverted. And here I denied God again. And just like I said, when God brings us to that place, by this time I was getting deeper and deeper into the occult, into the new age. Some of you have familiar with that term, the new age era that is among us. And I would like, if you want to know what the new age era is, please look in your Bible and read again in there, I believe it's 2 Corinthians, where it says that even Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. That is the new age. It is this presentation of something that looks good and makes a lot of promises. And there may even be a scripture or two in it. It is the devil. It is absolutely the devil. And I was getting deeper and deeper into this. There were a lot of promises. There was some sense of power that I was, I was feeling in giving myself over to this kind of witchcraft. And so, again, I had to make this choice as God put his finger on my life. And I didn't want to give that up. I didn't want to give up my anger. And it was such a singeing on my conscience that I went so deep into dark sin after that that... It's amazing that I'm here today. It is absolutely amazing. <clears throat> I went to a school for massage therapy where I was um, learning how to be a licensed therapist. And for the most part, the school had sound teaching, um, except for one class, which was called Allied Modalities, where what they did was they educated the students of various healing arts from around the world. And the thing about a lot of, a lot of Eastern um, approaches to health, their healing arts are very deeply intertwined with their demonic religions. You can't really separate them because they're so much wound together. And I just bit into that stuff. Just, I ate it up so much in the gall of my own bitterness, so overcome with my own pride and foolishness, having singed my conscience so greatly, I just dove into it. I thought, this is where I'm going to find my answers. Surfing didn't work. This will work. And I just gave myself over to it. I found myself more and more channeling spirits. I found myself very literally getting into witchcraft, reading books that were manuals for performing witchcraft. By this time, I was in my mid-20s and found myself in a cohabitational living situation and just about as empty and depressed as I'd ever been in my whole life. I didn't, knew, I didn't know it was possible to be so dead on the inside and still breathe. That's what it felt like. 
the intense paranoia and bondage that comes with dabbling in witchcraft, I don't know how to describe it. There's some things that we can just be afraid of, but the deep, soul-gripping paranoia is hard to describe. When I would go out and drive in my car, I would hear so many voices in my head, and I had given myself so much over to channeling these spirits that it was hard for me to, to determine what were my thoughts and what were the thoughts that were being interjected in there. He who sins the slave to his sin. And I was a slave to that sin. And I would go out and I'd drive around and I would go somewhere and I would park the car. And then I would think, okay, it's time to leave. And I would get close to the entrance and then I would hear the voices and I would not know which way to go. And so I would say, well, am I going home? Do I need to go do this? What do I do? And then I would go drive around the parking lot again and then park. Okay, what do I do? And then I would go drive and I'd come to that decision and then the fear would come upon me. I have spent hours and hours and hours driving in circles and parking lots. Um, and just severe, severe bondages with food. Um, it was hard for me to eat. And again, the paranoia for just doing something as simple as sitting down to a meal and eating a meal was so overwhelming. There were many times where I just wouldn't eat or didn't know what to eat or was just terrified. And I didn't eat because I thought it was a spiritual thing to not eat. The God was telling me to not eat. And I know I'm thin. Um, I've, I've always been thin. And I've been sick, and so I'm a little extra thin these days. Anyways, I lost a lot of weight. Um, I was a lot thinner than I am now. And people would look at me, and some people would say, what's wrong with that guy? And I, I was obviously losing my mind. I got back in contact with my former stepfather, who'd known me for 20 years, my whole life, really. And he personally told me, I think you need to be in a mental hospital under 24-hour care. That is what I think you need. But wouldn't you have it? By this time, I was living in um, Jacksonville, Florida, St. Augustine area. Something about that town that's just loaded with uh, witchcraft. I'm not sure what it is, but it's there. Um, my old friend from high school who got converted that I told you about. Somehow, by, by, by God's good pleasure, brought him back into my life. He was just passing through on a trip from Virginia down to Florida. And somehow we got back in contact. I'm not sure how. And I really didn't want to invite him over, but somebody there with me said, well, go ahead and invite him over. So I did it anyways, because I knew what it meant. I knew if he was coming over, I knew I was going to have to hear about God. But I invited him over. And by this time, he was married and he had three children. And here I spent my whole life trying to become somebody. And here my friend was a nobody. And just the light of God was on him. The light of God was on his whole family. And have, coming from so many broken homes, one after the other, here I saw a family, and they were happy. The children were happy. I, just the way they played with the cat. I remember um, my friend's wife giving their little baby a, a bath in the sink. Simple things like that ministered to my heart so deeply, and I saw the Spirit of God on them. There was something, there was a spirit there, and it made me so hungry. Something within me said, that is what I need. That is what I need. And let me tell you, in this day and age, if you have a family that reasonably likes each other, 
and people in society see that, you are a powerhouse. You are a powerhouse for God. And, and I was just gripped. And this was, this was a time in my life where I knew God was calling me again. And, and talk about a mission field. My friend came with his family and stayed in that situation there that I was living in that I told you about. I mean, literal idols and books of witchcraft all in that place. And my friend stayed there the night. His wife later told me, she said, if God had not given us a peace to be there, I, we would have not been there. But that was, that was their mission field for that night. And, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for it. Something made me hungry. They moved on, but I thought, this is what I need. And God was putting his finger on me again. And, and as God put his finger on me, I just, I just thought in a real logical way about all the other times that God had put his finger on me. And I thought, it never went well the other times I denied him. I'll try to not do that this time. There's a lot of discussion of child training in our church these days. Uh, consequences bring understanding. Uh, God does that. Um, and so I thought, it just never went well the other times when I denied God. I'm going to try to not do that this time. And so here I was in my... I, in a lot of ways, I had already crossed that line into insanity. I was already doing things that were, I think, very easily classified as insane. Um, and I still had enough sense. It was like I was kind of in one camp and in the other at the same time. And my mom saw this great need in my life, and she, by this time, had married a third time. And they offered me a lot. And this was a tremendous pull of my heart, having that emptiness from my mother leaving. Anytime my mom wanted to help me, it was like there was something in my heart that just wanted to, to latch on to it because it was like that, that scar that just seemed to be there and to dictate the choices of my life so, for so long. And she said, you know, we'll, we will find a doctor for you. We'll help you. We'll find a job for you. We will give you a place to live. We will give you everything. And so here, my friend, I was on the phone with my friend. You know, a fairly regularly talking to him he had I think he went uh, he'd moved on from there anyways and he would talk to me and he would listen to me I remember one night sitting in my car I wanted to call him but I was just so overcome with the voices and the fear and the gripping paranoia that witchcraft had brought into my life and, and I was so terrified to call him but I wanted to call him and it was kind of late at night and if you can just imagine this this spiritual battle in my mind and know finally by God's mercy, I gave him a call, and I remember he picked up the phone. He probably woke him up. I remember the first words out of his mouth so clearly. Tim, I'm so glad you called. I'm so glad you called. He'll probably never know what that meant to my heart at that time. He was so willing to listen. He could have so easily just beaten me to pieces with this thing. It would have been so easy for him, but he listened a lot. And he had some gentle things to say. And he offered me, he said, you know, we're living in Virginia. I knew they were living in Virginia. Why, why don't you just come up and, and stay a while? Why don't you just come up and visit us and stay a while? And, um, and I knew something within me. God was, I felt like God was telling me, if you are going to follow me, I want you to go. And I was, I was not converted, not by any means. But I knew that's what it meant to respond to God rather than deny Him. Taking up my mom's offer was to deny God. I felt like God was putting it on my heart. 
And so I made the choice to come up to, here to Virginia. I remember having a discussion with my second stepfather at that time. He said, you are in such incredible need of help, and you're going to go up to Virginia with an old high school buddy. I said, yeah. And that just about floored him. I remember it was, there wasn't really much favorable response uh, from my mom either. But I went, and it was a unique living situation that he had there at the time. There was an, there was an old church retreat campground at that time up there in uh, Stewart's Draft area. And there were a number of families living on that campground. Um, I think all of them would have had a, a world-hard background. Um, and so I came to this place, just very bizarre, and I met these people who had these lives that were radically transformed by God. And I saw these families that were happy with each other. They, they really seemed to love each other. The husbands genuinely seemed to love the wife, and the wife, th this was twofold amazing to me. Not only did the wife seem to genuinely love and reverence her husband, she seemed to actually submit to him and be happy. The world says that a wife that submits to her husband is her husband's just a, a, what do you call it, a dictator, an abusive man. He doesn't let her be all that she can be. I saw women happily submitting to their husbands and in love with their husbands and husbands that were in love with their wives. And again, it was such a powerful testimony to me. And so I was there and God made it clear to me. I, one of the people told me, he said, when you showed up here, your eyes were black. Your eyes were black. A lot of great need. One, one brother that was there, he's like, you have, later he told me, it's like you showed up into a Christian ICU, intensive care unit, and I needed a lot of care. And this environment God brought me to gave me a lot of help that I needed. And people were, were speaking to me. They were speaking truth into my lives, and I was hearing these 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 things about God that I just never heard before. I was seeing being born again means something. A person can be set free from sin, as I heard a lot of very, very hard lives who were brought into a place of the peace and rest of God. And I had just never seen or heard of it in that kind of magnitude, and here it was right in front of my face. I decided to stay there, <clears throat> And I, and I felt like, this is, this is what I need. This is what I need. I need to be born again. And so that would have been in January of 2007. So eight years ago. And around that time is when I would have first met Eric there at um, Millmont Greenhouses. I was given a job there uh, after a few months of kind of getting some bearings. And I was repenting of everything I knew how to repent of. The witchcraft, even a shirt that had a questionable symbol on it. I was just getting rid of it all. I had all kinds of stones and, and various, oh, a lot of books, and I'm burning the books, and I'm getting rid of all these things, and I'm just trashing my entire whole life, and I'm, and I'm faithfully attending church every day, and I'm reading my Bible all the time, and I'm doing everything I know how to do, and I'm not converted. Not converted. Still would just look up to the sky and feel there, there is just no connection between... I mean, it was like heaven had iron gates. But I was trying. I was praying. I was trying to get born again. 
And if you listen to that statement, you will understand why it wasn't working, because that statement is, explains it. You can't, I was trying to achieve it, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, and I remember there was some things in that time where God really was starting to, I think, churn my heart up, till up that soil, getting it ready for his seed. I remember one time I was sitting there in um, one of my friend's bedrooms, and there were two of the brothers there, and they were having a discussion about the doctrinal teaching of divorce and remarriage. And I was just sat there, and I, and I was listening to this thing. And I had never heard anything like it in my entire life. It blew me away. And I said, is that true? And sure enough, I opened the Bible, and there it was as it lays on the page. Just And how could it have been there for so long, and I never heard it or saw it? But there it was, just as plain as day. <clears throat> and that moment in time, that was, one, that was such a powerful moment in time, because the Bible explained my depression in a moment. Remember, I told you there was something within me that cried out against this divorce and remarriage. It was so hurtful, it seemed so wrong. And then in my mind, <coughs> I justified it. And so there was this total disconnect, and I was plagued with all this depression my entire life, and I couldn't explain it. In a moment, God explained it. He said, this is why you feel that way, because I created you, and this is how it should be, and it's not that way, and it is hard for you. And at that moment in my life, the Bible became more than an optional religion. The Bible became the perfect description of reality. The Bible became the description of reality, not an optional perspective. Again, that wasn't conversion. And so I wrestled through these things. And for about six months or so of trying to get born again, it's not working, what's happening? Start, it felt like God was just holding me at arm's length. That somehow, whosoever will let him come except for Tim. That's what it felt like. But God resists the proud, and I'm still so intertwined with my pride. I'm thinking, I can do this. I'm the one that's going to be able to, to achieve this born-again thing. And it does not work that way. I remember one day, I was so frustrated. And the people around me were genuinely wondering, what is the deal with this guy? You know, we've, we've shown him the plan of salvation. We have done all we know how to do, and he is not converted. There were these signs all over the camp with these scriptures on them. And I remember I would walk by those scriptures and it just felt like this thing that was on top of me. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. I remember that. And it just felt like this weight that was on me. It was just like crushing me. And I remember this one day, I was at work there at Milmont and I was, um, I was just venting my frustrations. I was like, I don't know what the deal is. And this... Um, an older brother there, he said, well, maybe later we can just go talk at lunch. Why don't we, why don't we just, we'll, we'll just talk. No pressure, we'll just talk. And so we went out to the picnic table there, and we sat down. And, and I remember going out to that table, and I was just thinking, I just want to be honest. You know, Lord, please just help me be honest. I did pray that. And I went out there, and I just presented my arguments. I felt like I had these arguments that were against God. But I knew that I was wrong in the sight of God. But I still had these feelings that were contrary to God. And I didn't want to just 
dismiss them and say, well, I, I'm not allowed to feel that way because God's right. It was more like, this is how I honestly feel, even though I'm wrong, but I don't know what to do with it. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Let us reason together. Let us reason together. That's what happened that day. I reasoned with God. I presented my arguments to this brother. He had a gentle scripture every time that, that gave a reproof to the feelings that I had, feelings of being pushed away. And we kind of went back and forth a few times until finally he looked at me and he just presented to me just about as clear as could be. He said, Tim, this is just coming down to faith. You can either accept Jesus Christ or you're going to hell. And I've heard that before. I knew it in my mind. But for some reason when he said it, when those words left his mouth, the Holy Ghost gave such a powerful witness to what he said. It was like, I'm not sure how to describe it, it was almost like a bright shining light appeared behind him and it was like God looked out of heaven and pointed his finger directly at me. And in a moment, I was convicted of my sin. My sin was so real. Not all of these sins that I committed, but that I was a sinner. I had a glimpse of the righteousness of God. And there was no doubt in my mind what judgment had been laid upon me at that moment in time. And I was reduced to a tiny, tiny speck of existence, which is what I had been the whole time, but too proud to see it. And in the mercy of God, by His grace, He showed me what I really, really was. And I remember the brother said, do you want to pray? I said, yes. We got down and we prayed. I remember I purposely ignored what he said because I knew this had to be between myself and God. And I didn't want to get distracted by anything he was praying. I'm not saying it was a vain prayer. And then in that prayer, just somehow with whatever speck of existence I had, everything that I knew how to do, it was like I just reached out to Jesus. I just prayed and tried to call out to Jesus. And at that moment, I passed from death into life. At that exact moment, it was like God came out of heaven and changed something within me. For years and years and years, I just was under such blackness and darkness. I was in so much pain. I was so full of myself. And in a moment of time, God did it. God did it. It wasn't something, it wasn't the prayer. It was a prayer of faith, but it was only because God gave me the grace to pray it. And in a moment time, it was like everything changed. Everything changed. And I had tried it. I had tried it with surfing. I had tried it with the psychiatrist, the psychologist, the medication, the new age, the self-help seminars, the self-help retreats, the drugs, the alcohol. And God did it. Though that emptiness within my heart, it was like I got it from that prayer and I remember everything looked different. Absolutely everything looked different. The trees looked different. I know there's that scripture there about the trees clapping their hands. I didn't know that at that time. But when I got up, it was like even the trees looked different. And I, was, I wasn't quite exactly sure what happened. The, the brother I was with, he knew what happened. He knew what happened. He was in tears and... and I, uh, you know, kind of like a baby that was born. You know, they don't know what happened, but they're responding to it. 
And, and I remember I went back to the camp, and I was sitting there having some um, supper with some of the other youth there, and, and we're just, you know, casual talk. You know, I'm just kind of in this spacey daze. And, and I remember just talking about our day, and somebody said, well, Tim, how did your day go? And I remember I just sat there and I said, I prayed on the name of Jesus today and believed. And it was like you could have heard a pin drop. The, uh, the one sister that was there, I mean, she looked at me, and she, I could see in her eyes, she's like, that's real, that's real. I mean, the Holy Ghost must have just bore witness to it. And as those words left my mouth, I said, I believed. It was like I knew I was telling the truth. It was like God was saying, this is real, this is real. And oh, my, I remember I, went, I was... I had a motorhome I brought up from Florida. I was just living in this, I was living in this old rundown motorhome, and I was just sitting back there, just kind of, wow. <laughs> and one of the um, the uh, brothers there, uh, one of the more mature brothers that was providing a lot of leadership there, he came back there. He he wanted to check this out, and I remember him sitting across the table from me, giving me a cross examination, really, but in a real gentle, kind of subtle way. I knew what he was doing though. <laughs> and I, I remember I remember the delight and just the joy that came upon his countenance when, when he saw it. And and I saw I saw this is my brother. It was like I was related to him. All of a sudden, here's my brother right next to me. And all, before there was always that chasm, that uncrossable chasm. And then here this man is my brother. And God did it. God did it. It was through the Lord Jesus Christ in that sign that I told you about. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. It was like after I got converted, a moment, the, what, the, the great transaction that God did within my heart and my mind. I walked by that sign, and I would that sign that was like a weight on me, I remember there was something inside of me that was just crying out with rejoicing. Something inside of me just wanted to scream, Amen, that's right. I remember I opened up the Bible, and it was like the words are just coming off of the page. It's like they're life to me. I just wanted to drink them up. And thankfully, God never calls us to leave that first love. That was the best day of my whole life. The day that I truly met with Jesus Christ and he met with me and he reached out of heaven and took someone who should have been destroyed long ago from the face of this earth and he had mercy on him and he had mercy on him I want to read one scripture and I, I want to tell you not one day not one day since my conversion have I ever tasted depression even remotely like I was plagued with my entire life. God set me free. God set me free. And it was something he did. God did it. Now, my walk with the Lord has been ongoing. There's been a lot of pain and a lot of things that I have had to come to the cross and, and let him save me from. The, uh, some things... Some giants we slay after we entered the land. But we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. And I don't have to live in hopeless bondage because of the molestation. I don't have to live in hopeless bondage because 
of the deep pain from divorce. I don't have to live in hopeless bondage because of the abuse or just feeling neglected or whatever. I don't have to live in hopeless bondage because of the multitude of sins that I committed. The sins that I committed. Here's a scripture. Jesus passed by and saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus said, Neither has this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Now, I am not going to stand before you and try to tell you that I haven't sinned because I have brought the negative circumstances upon myself more than any other human being on the face of the earth. And some of the circumstances that have been brought upon me are because of the sins of others. And in some sense, yeah, that, that makes me a victim. At least without Christ. Because through Christ, I'm more than a conqueror. By His grace. But this is the point that I want to share with you in those scriptures. I can live my life thinking that somehow something was taken from me. And it's good to have godly sorrow for those things of the past. But I have an opportunity. I have an opportunity to testify of the glory of God and the power of His salvation. I have such a wonderful opportunity to testify of the mercy and the goodness of God. I don't wish these circumstances on anybody. But these are circumstances that I can't undo. They happened. And you know what? I'm just so thankful for who the Lord Jesus is that I can stand here before you today, even from the things that were handed to me of no choice of my own. I'm so thankful that I can stand here before you today and testify of the glory of God. And for that, I'm just so, so thankful. I'm so thankful. God bless you all. Thank you very much for listening.